Well, about a year ago, my wife and I discovered this this BBC drama about the uh, the dynamics of this rich aristocratic family and their servants. Uh, I, I won't say what the show is since I don't want to ruin things for you. Uh, but if you haven't watched it yet, if you don't know about this show, just just be, rest assured that it's not a soap opera. And, and contrary to what some of my other guy friends have said, it's it's okay for a man to watch this show. Um, you know, at the end of one of the episodes, to the outrage of the fans, you know, the husband in kind of one of the main romantic relationships dies. And uh, amongst other things, one of the writers responded basically by saying that marriage is boring. You know, nobody really wants to keep watching this happily married couple kind of carry on. Uh, people want the thrill of the chase, the pursuit of romance. So it's okay that he died. You know, our thinking about marriage is changing, isn't it, in our culture, in our society. It's no longer primarily about the, the, the mutual love, the, the, the task of procreation, of protection. But rather now, it's all about um, personal gratification. Right? That, that's sort of the main thing that we think about when we think about marriage. There was a, a recent article in the New York Times called The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And the columnist, columnist writes this. The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. And the emotional, intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships... People are looking for a partnership and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. Well, it's, it's no surprise then when we hear all the various statistics that I'm sure you've heard about, uh, divorce and, and children born out of wedlock uh, and the rise of cohabitation. You now, with the change in our view of marriage, because with change in how we live, right? You can't separate your worldview from your practice. I think of this is all um, sort of in line with how Paul describes people in the last days, right? What does he say? He says, people will be lovers of themselves without love, without self-control, treacherous, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yeah, that fits. We shouldn't be surprised to see this in the world around us. But the real question is whether or not we are seeing this in the church, among those who profess to follow God. Is there a difference between the people of God and the people of this world? This morning we continue our study in the book of Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet to speak to Israel before God goes silent for 400 years. And as the people await the arrival of the Messiah. And, and what Malachi had to say to Israel back then really addresses so many of the issues that we deal with as we await the arrival of the Messiah, the return of the Messiah. So, so turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. And we'll read here beginning in verse 10. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 10. 
Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Well, it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You know, given the context of this passage, this isn't what we would expect God to be, want to talk to them about you know, at this moment. You know, the, the nation is in ruins. Uh, they're being harassed by foreign powers. They're, they're, they're anxious for the Messiah to come and deliver them. So, you know, wouldn't it make more sense for God to talk to them about how they should conduct themselves politically? Uh, sort of how they should deal di- diplomatically with other nations? Uh, wouldn't it be better for God to talk to them about specific timelines and events to come? But God doesn't do that. Instead, he wants to talk to them about their marriages. Because he knows that it is in the everyday details of our marriages that we cultivate a heart that fears and obeys God. And, and that sort of heart is how we prepare for the coming, the return of the Messiah. Well, this text addresses really two sins that Israel had found themselves entangled in. Uh, interfaith marriages, you know, being married to, to unbelievers, and unbiblical hate-based divorce. And the question that I want to ask this morning is, you know, how serious are these sins? How serious is the sin of interfaith marriage? How serious is the sin of hate-based divorce? That's our outline this morning. And so first, the question, how serious is the sin of, of interfaith marriage? Look, look again with me, Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel, and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. We should be clear, first of all, that, that Malachi is not talking about intercultural or interracial marriages. Now, the Old Testament is filled with stories about uh, God-fearing Jews who married God-fearing Gentiles. So, so Moses and Zipporah, uh, Boaz and Ruth, Salmon and Rahab. 
Uh, the Old Testament is clear that if any Gentile man or woman would leave behind their false idols and declare allegiance and worship to the God of Israel, that, that they were welcome into that community. Rather, the problem here is that the Israelite men were marrying unbelieving women, uh, daughters of foreign gods. Uh, to be a daughter or a child of someone is to, be, is to take on their character, to be shaped by their agenda. In other words, Israelite men were marrying women who were shaped by a worship of false gods. And this is something that God had forbidden uh, since the forming of this nation. They were not to intermarry with, with sons and daughters of surrounding nations because God knew that if they did so, they would be led astray. And, and that's exactly what happened. Israel disobeyed and they turned to idolatry. And eventually they suffered God's judgment and were exiled out of the land. And now all these years later, God has been kind to bring them back to the land. But tragically, here they, here they are doing it all over again. Well, how, how serious was this problem? Let, let me just make three points about how serious this was. First, this interfaith marriage denies God. And that's what we see there in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Now, God is reminding them of who he is. God is one. Unlike what these other nations believe, there's only one God over all the nations. Not you know, many different gods over many different nations, but one God, maker of heaven and earth, to whom all people owe their worship. But for an Israelite to marry an idol-worshipping woman, Gentile, uh, is for him to, to accept her worship as legitimate. And not only that, but, but God here is saying that he is a father to his people. Now, as father, God provides for his people. He shows them how they are to live. In the ancient world, the, the father often arranged the marriage of his children. And perhaps here God is reminding his people that as their father, he is in charge of whom they are to marry. And well, finally, God is their creator. He made them. And he created them not only individually, but, but he made them as a nation. They have their beginning as a dis- distinct nation in God. They, they belong to him as a people. And therefore, for them to, to ignore their identity as a people and to marry outside of their faith, well, that was for, for them to reject their identity as belonging to God. Now, I'm really struck by how, the, how basic these truths are that God is pointing out. God as one, as Father, as Creator. You know, these are the same things that we confessed this morning, right, in our Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, ruler of all, maker of all things visible and invisible. I'm guessing that the Israelites and we would recite these things regularly without any disagreement. But what we often fail to realize is that these truths have have real practical implications for our lives, down to things as practical as who we, we should or should not marry. I doubt many of us look at this as a guide to marriage this morning, right? Uh, but we should. Now, theology is profoundly practical, and Israel had forgotten this. And in pursuing interfaith marriages, they were denying God, who he is. Second, interfaith marriage is serious because it, it betrays God's people. That's what we see there in the rest of verse 10. 
Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? That word breaking faith there has connotations of betrayal, of treachery. Now God has saved them as a people. He had united them, rescued them out of the world. And in God's sort of love towards them, he, he marked them off from the world as, as those belonging to him. He is their father. They are his children. But, but here, we see some who are beginning to look for intimacy and fellowship outside of the people of God. And in doing so, what were they saying? Well, they, they were saying that there's really not that much difference between us and the world, right? The, the covenant that our fathers made with God really isn't that big of a deal, there's no in or out when it comes to God. We're free to interact with the world as we please. And in doing so, they, they were desecrating the sanctuary that the Lord loves. That sanctuary, I don't think is referring to any particular place, but actually the people, God's people. God loves his covenant people, and he dwells in their midst. And yet these Israelites have treated them cheaply, bringing idol worshipers into the community by marriage. You know, I think what Malachi is saying is that far from being a, a private, a harmless affair, no, this sort of sin affects the entire community. It, it's a breaking of faith. You know, that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What, a, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. If you're a Christian, to, to pursue marriage with an unbeliever is not only inconsistent with your profession of faith, your belief in God, but it's inconsistent with your profession to belong to the people of God. And that leads to the third reason why this is such a serious sin. Those who pursue interfaith marriage will be cut off. That's the third thing that we see here. They will be cut off. Verse 12, As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Yeah, that's really serious. To be cut off from the tents of Jacob is to no longer belong to the people of God. To be cut off from the protection and from the blessings of belonging to God's people, to be cast off into the world. Notice that last phrase there. Even though they bring offerings to God, they will still be cut off. Whoever he may be, priest or Levite or king, if he does this, he will be cut off. God shows no partiality. You know, what this tells us is that our attitude towards marriage is often a better indicator of our hearts than how often we might go to church or, or how much we give. It, it's not that marrying an unbeliever is the unforgivable sin. No, but it is true that one who marries an unbeliever reveals where they're at spiritually by, by how little they fear and trust God, by how little they value the things of God and how much they're willing to ignore God's warnings and risk being led astray simply to 
fulfill their desires. So, so don't minimize this sin. No, no, take it seriously. It's a detestable thing in God's sight because it reveals just how little regard one has for God. And God will deal with it seriously. So in light of all this, let me just say a word then to, to Christians here who desire to be married. Uh, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or old, whether you've never been married or, or, or have been married but now find yourself single again, if you're a Christian, then hear God's word clearly. You should not marry outside the faith. To do so is to turn your back not only on God, but also on his people. Uh, now, this is really hard. But I think here we see something of Jesus' call for you to take up your cross and to follow him. You know, are, are you willing to obey this? even if no Christian man or woman ever comes along? Um, you know, I, I don't doubt that some of you have some really kind and, and generous and, and friendly co-workers and neighbors and friends who are not believers. And, and I'm sure there are days that you wonder, you know, why do I have to live alone? Why am, not, why am I not allowed to find companionship? I don't have easy answers for you. But I think what we're being shown here is that there is something bigger in life than marriage and our fulfillment in it. Right? Marriage is not the ultimate thing, according to this. No, God is the ultimate thing. God is the ultimate one. And if you make marriage ultimate, believe me, when, even if you get married, you're going to be so disappointed. We were never made to find our greatest satisfaction in our spouses. We were made for God, to know Him as our loving and fulfilling Father and Creator. And in the midst of your waiting, don't forget that you belong to a family. You do have a family. You do have a people. It's, it's your church. I think here is, is where we as a church need to be a family for those who are single. A, a friend recently remarked how when he lost his wife, he not only lost a wife, but he, he lost the circle of friends that he belonged to. And that's really heartbreaking. Um, Brothers and sisters, may that not be true of us. Those of us who are married, let's not forget to include our unmarried friends, our unmarried brothers and sisters in our lives. Yes, when we gather as a church, for sure, but, but even when we live out our lives throughout the week, let's support and honor our single brothers and sisters as they carry the cross that God has given them, as they strive to be faithful to God's commands. I also want to say a word to any brothers and sisters here who are currently in a marriage to an unbeliever. Uh, now, this passage is primarily a warning for those who are being tempted to, to marry an unbeliever. But, but it doesn't answer the question of what to do if you find yourself in that situation. It, it could be that you got married before you were a Christian and, and you were later converted. Uh, it could be that your spouse has fallen away from the faith. Or it could be that you were in a, seri- a season of, of immaturity and rebellion and, and you pursued this. Whatever the situation, let me be clear and, and say it again that, that if there was sin involved, know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. For those who repent and place their trust in him, Christ was cut off in order that sinners might be forgiven. You know, and, and he's our hope.
And in your situation, uh, repentance does not mean that you should divorce your spouse. Now, on the contrary, Paul is really clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that if your spouse is willing to stay, you must not divorce them. Instead, instead, God commands you to love your spouse. Uh, Paul's commands in, in, in Ephesians 5 to, to love and submit as Christ loves the church and the church submits to Christ, that applies whether your spouse is a believer or not. And so at the same time, you want to take what this passage is saying seriously by recognizing the challenge that you face. You know, on the one hand, God calls you to love and serve and submit to your spouse. But on the other hand, you, you cannot compromise your greatest allegiance, which is God. And so this is really hard. You, you, you can fall off the horse on either side, right? Uh, you can follow your spouse in such a way that compromises your faith, or you can hold firm to your faith in such a way that alienates and dishonors your spouse. Uh, to be honest, I, I'm not exactly sure how to strike that balance. But, but if this is you, make sure that you're a part of a local church uh, and in relationship with wise believers and pastors who know you, who are able to speak into your life, and who will join you in praying for you and your family. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope you're seeing something of how invasive and comprehensive the allegiance that God demands is. You know, our relationship with God cannot be compartmentalized. You know, either God is God over all of our lives, or He is not God. If we can, if we can say, you know, God, you can have all of this, but this thing here is mine. You know, what we're really saying is that you're not Lord, you're not God. You're not the God of heaven and earth who made us, to whom we owe everything. But in saying all this, don't think of God as some kind of cosmic killjoy. right? That's not what's going on here. If you think that, that's only because you have turned a good but lesser thing into an ultimate thing. It's clear that this was happening thousands of years ago, and it continues to happen today. Yes, marriage is a, is a wonderful gift, but there is one who is even greater. And God here is saying, I'm the only true satisfaction and meaning in life. Find your fulfillment in me. Well, interfaith marriage is a serious sin. And now Malachi is going to raise a second serious sin. Look with me, beginning in verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. Now what God is condemning here is particularly the practice of hate-based divorce. 
Uh, a more straightforward translation of verse 16 would be, for the man who hates his wife and divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. For the man who hates his wife and divorces her, that man covers his garment with violence. Now, many of the contemporary translations have taken that approach to translating this verse. In other words, what God is condemning here is not all divorce, but rather divorce that is based solely on a man's subjective feelings of, of hatred for his wife, no longer loving her anymore. And this lines up with the fact that God did make provisions for divorce in the Mosaic Law. But it was never meant to be a license for unfaithfulness. It was actually meant to be a protection, particularly for the women. But in Malachi's days, it had been turned into an easy way to break your vows. Sadly, this sort of hate-based divorce, here in the West, we've adopted something pretty similar, right? In adopting no-fault divorces based merely on feelings of disaffection. As Christians, it's right for us that we should work for laws and policies that promote a biblical understanding of marriage. And yet we can see here that even if our cultural standards change, God's people cannot compromise how we live. And we shouldn't think that just because this was written a long time ago to a people long, long ago, that this was any easy for its hearers back then than it would be for us today. I mean, for some reason, we, we think, well, these laws and commands about marriage and divorce probably worked uh, in, the, in ancient days or in my parents' days, but the world has changed, right? Nobody can live this way anymore. That's not true. Uh, God's laws have never been popular in any period of fallen human history. And so for, for Malachi to condemn this long-standing practice, that probably would have infuriated his hearers. Uh, we like to be in charge of our own lives, and, and that would have been no different back then. Now, many of these men uh, didn't have a role in arranging their childhood betrothals. But now, as adults, they have the power to take matters into their own hands and end their marriages by divorce and then marry women that they truly loved. This is probably not a freedom that they were likely to give up without a fight. So if you find yourself feeling indignant at what God says here, just know that your, your indignation has nothing to do with changing cultural norms, but has everything to do with sinful human nature that just doesn't like to submit to God's authority. Well, the question is, how serious is the sin of hate-based divorce? And so let me give you three answers from the text. First, hate-based divorce incurs God's justice. Incurs God's justice. That's what we see there in verse 14. The, the reason why God was expressing his displeasure with the people is because he was acting as witness to their marriage covenants. God would not honor their sacrifices while they continued in this sin. And the solution is not for them to offer bigger sacrifices or to weep and to wail louder. No, the solution is repentance. It's not as if you can bribe God by you know, greater displays of emotion or, or, or bigger offerings of gifts. God is not... You can't treat God like the way a bad parent would treat a child. Um, you know, you've seen this, this, this example of bad parenting. It's bad parenting. 
When, when the parent sins against the child, you know, he loses his temper, he gets angry at the child, he yells at the child, and he knows that he shouldn't have done that. But instead of asking for forgiveness from the child, he gives him some candy or a present, and the child just quickly forgets about it. No, that, that's bad parenting, okay? And don't do that if you do that. Um, confess your sins to your kids. Ask for their forgiveness. But, but that doesn't work with God either. All right, God, God is not a kid that you can just sort of give a bigger gift to and he'll forget about the wrong that you've done. No, no, God is a God of justice. He is judge and witness. If wrong has been done, God needs to respond with justice. That's what's going on here. What does a witness do? He doesn't just watch the covenant being made, but rather the job of a witness is to actually be the enforcer, the, the guarantor, of the terms of the covenant. That's why covenants were usually made in the presence of those who have the authority and power to enforce it. Judges and kings. Well, in the marriage covenant, God is witness. When you made your wedding vows, you made them before God. He was the witness. Do you remember your wedding vows? If, if they were something like mine, you vowed to love and to cherish your spouse, to, to comfort them, to obey them, to, to honor them, to keep in sickness and in health, to forsake all others, to keep only unto him or her as long as you both shall live, to do this for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. You know, you, you might not remember all the signatures on your marriage certificate. But according to this, you can be sure that God's signature is on there. He is the covenant witness to your marriage vows. And where there has been injustice, where there has been violence, God is not going to stand by and ignore. No, he will avenge. His reputation is at stake. So take this seriously, because God takes this seriously. Second, hate-based divorce, it rejects God's purposes. It rejects God's purposes. That's what we see there in verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. He was seeking godly offspring. You know, the Hebrew in this passage is really tricky. If you're looking at a different translation than the one in the Pew Bible, you might have something different. But what they all sort of get at is that this verse is saying something about God's, one of God's primary purposes in marriage. God is seeking godly offspring. That doesn't mean that all godly marriages will result in godly children or even children at all. Nor is this saying that ungodly marriages will mean you know, doomed, lost children. But rather, what this passage is revealing is the basic principle that the context of a faithful marriage with a loving father and a mother is the best context to raise children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Right? Uh, there in a faithful marriage, you get that wonderful balance that every child needs, a, a father who will model authority and toughness and a mother who will nurture and support, and both who will do that in a context of love. 
Now, God is seeking godly offspring, and he will do that through our marriages. This totally undermines our individualistic approach to marriage. Uh, In bringing a man and a woman together, God is about something far bigger than just the selfish dreams and pleasures of one person. No, God is out to create a family, to create a people for himself. Marriage conducted in the fear of God results not just in private fulfillment, but it leads to wider human flourishing across communities and across generations. Our marriages are, are to be like fruitful gardens that God cultivates for, for good fruit, not just for us, but for himself. But hate-based divorce is a rejection of all of that, tearing at the very fabric of the society that God is building. Finally, uh, what we see here is that hate-based divorce will be exposed. It will be exposed. Verse 16, the man who hates and divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. What does it mean to cover your garment with violence? Well, it's sort of like the saying, you've got blood on your hands. Or or maybe according to this, you've got got crime on your clothes. Uh, In other words, you're going to be exposed for your violence. Uh, Divorce is not the sanitized legal transaction that it so often appears to be in the courtroom. Now, past those appearances, there are broken promises. There's betrayal. There's injustice. Far from being a mere technicality, hate-based divorce is violence against God and against the spouse. And the day will come when that will be exposed, as plain as the clothes that you wear. So, so brothers and sisters, take this seriously. Take your vows seriously. Take your marriage seriously. God is witness. I'm struck by the comment made by Jesus' disciples in Matthew 19 that, that we heard read earlier now, Jesus makes it really clear, hate-based divorce is a sin only when there has been objective marital unfaithfulness or, or according to 1 Corinthians 7, in some cases, abandonment. Uh, can there be divorce? But even then, it's never, really, it's never commanded. And, and, and while the disciples hear all that and they respond by saying, well, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, maybe it's better not to marry and in some ways, I, I get what they're saying. <laughs> Marriage is hard, right? Um, but what we should realize is that it's hard, not because marriage itself is broken. No, marriage is a wonderful gift given for human flourishing and for human good. No, it's hard because our hearts are broken. Um, we are sinful and selfish. And everything in us that's wired to be sinful and selfish makes marriage that much more difficult. So, so for marriages to work, we desperately need the grace of God and the gospel. So again, if, if, you're, if you're unmarried, if you're a single person here desiring to be married, take this seriously. Um, don't, don't approach marriage with the Hollywood rose-colored glasses on. Uh, m- make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, a great way to do that is pick up a copy of uh, the book, What Did You Expect? Isn't that a great title for a marriage book? What did you expect uh, by Paul Tripp over there in the bookstall? Um, find a friend to read it with. Read it with a, with a married friend. It, it would be a, a great way to prepare. Let me say a word to any here who have gone through an unbiblical divorce, who themselves are guilty of this. And I should say, once again, first of all, 
that, that an unbiblical divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Praise God. You know, yes, your garment is covered in violence, but if you have placed your trust in Christ, He has taken off that garment and put it on Himself. And He has taken off His spotless garment and put it on you. As you think about what Malachi is saying here, be in awe of the grace that we have all received in the cross. You know, we've been asking, how serious is this sin? Well, it's so serious that in order for God to forgive us, he had to put Christ, his son, on the cross to die in our place. On the one hand, God is declaring that he hates divorce. He's forbidding us to do that. But then on the other hand, he comes and he bears that shame and that guilt on himself so that we might be forgiven. Yet the gospel is for people like us, for sinners like you and me. And as one who has been forgiven, as one who has been loved in Christ, if there are opportunities for for reconciliation between you and your your former spouse, you should pursue that. That's going to mean different things for different people. If you're both still unmarried, it might mean getting married to them again. If you're both already remarried to others, it's going to look very different. I'm not saying that any of this is going to be simple or easy, But if there are matters left unreconciled, the gospel calls you towards reconciliation. And know that you have a church, you have have elders here who would be glad to sit with you and talk with you and pray with you and counsel you in this regard. Now, if you're a Christian here who, who is the wronged party of an unbiblical divorce, I think here is where you can find the security and the assurance to forgive and not to be consumed by bitterness. Yes, your, your spouse broke their vows and perhaps fallen human justice did very little about that, but not God. God is witness and he's going to enforce the terms of your marriage covenant by bringing justice, either on the cross or in eternity. So justice is not up to you. You're not able to, but more importantly, you don't have to bring about justice. No, you're freed to forgive and to show mercy just as you've been shown mercy. You know, Todd's sermon from last week was just an excellent meditation on this whole point. And this is something that we need to hear again and again. God is witness. He will judge justly. Let me say a word to my brothers and sisters who are married here. I hope the main point is clear. We, we need to take our marriage covenants seriously. Malachi repeats that command there in verses 15 and 16. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. That that guard yourself, you could even translate it, guard your life. Um, Guard your marriage as seriously as you would guard your own life. You know, Malachi emphasizes our spirit, guarding our spirit. What this tells us is that a divorce never happens just overnight. Right? Rather, by the time that it happens, a couple has drifted apart in their spirit. So, so guard yourself in your spirit. Do you find yourself wandering away from your spouse in your spirit? Have you allowed your marriage to grow cold and, to, and for hurts to go unaddressed? Have you walked out the door for work morning after morning without an affectionate word, without a tender kiss? 
Have you allowed sexual impurity to creep into your thoughts and your spirit? If so, face up to it. Recognize it. Confess it. Confess it to a friend. Confess it to a spouse. It's not an easy thing, but but confession is the first step to owning up to it and to repenting of it. Make sure you have other men and women, other couples in your life that know how your marriage is doing, who can talk through and walk through your struggles with you. Uh, who themselves might not be models of perfection, but at least they're models of humility and godliness. Uh, you know, we always say this. We always tell you to, to, to talk to each other, but that's one of the most practical things that you can do. Uh, go home, talk to your spouse, and think about another couple here in this church that you might begin regularly meeting up with once a month, every other week, just kind of regularly meeting up with to talk about your marriages and to pray with one another, maybe read a book together. Take this seriously. That's the work of, of guarding your spirit, but, but this passage also encourages us to take a step farther, which is to cultivate a, a godly marriage. Now, verse 14 talks about the wife of your youth being a partner by marriage covenant. And, and that word there, partner, really has to do with, with friendship and, and relationship, companionship. Um, God recognizes that the heart of marriage is not just us gritting our teeth and gutting it out you know, in misery. No, rather, marriage is given as a, a tremendous gift of companionship and friendship and delight. So, so don't take that for granted. You know, cultivate it. Nurture it. Go out on date nights. Take walks. Talk to one another. You know, close the computer. Turn off the TV. Talk to one another. I'm preaching to myself. Uh, as the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, a man is not kept chaste by having a wife, but by loving his wife. So love your spouse. Love your spouse. What a privilege it is to be part of this church uh, where we have just countless models of faithful marriages that have lasted 30, 40, 50 years, where, where the husband and wife still show affection for one another, even after all that time. That's how every Christian marriage should be. But, but it doesn't come about by, by accident. No, it, it takes work. It takes patience and perseverance. And it requires the grace of God in the gospel. I don't think it's a coincidence that we have this marriage seminar, Sunday seminar coming up. Uh, think about attending that, 13 weeks to, to think about marriage uh, over the summer. Hinson Baptist Church, we have a role to play in all this. Our job is not to police people's marriages, to, to make sure that every family and every marriage looks the same and talks the same. Uh, far from it. Rather, to be a member of this church is to say to this body, hey, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Please keep me accountable to that profession. If I ever become so deceived by sin that I stop living like a Christian, please do something about it. The church exists as a guard against our own self-deception. And that's key. That's crucial when we, when we talk about this. You know, I love my dear wife. I love my dear kids. Ransom is super cute right now. Um, they are a huge blessing to me. But if the day should come when for some reason, for some stupid reason, I think that running off with another woman is better than what God has already given me in my family, and I betray my wife and I turn my back on my kids, and I hope you won't stand by and say nothing. 
before even that happens, I pray that in love and firmness, you would confront me, you would question me, you would shake me, and you would even put me through church discipline. All to bring me to my senses and lovingly call me back to the gospel, to the truth. That's not us meddling in each other's business. That's us holding fast to one another, guarding one another in love. Do this for me, please. And let's covenant to do this for one another. If you're finding, if you're having some serious difficulties in your marriage and you have not yet involved others, particularly your elders, please do so. You know, we're not like the silver bullet who will solve all your problems, but at the very least, we'll pray for you. And we might have some very practical ways to help you. Well, we should conclude. We can look at this text as a series of prohibitions, you know, what not to do. But if that's all we see, I think we're missing some really significant truths. Uh, why should God's people live this way? Well, because this is what God is like. These commands are rooted in the character of God. We serve a God who is faithful to his people. He will never leave them nor forsake them. And our marriages exist to show something of what God's love is like. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is the most important thing you need to understand. What you're hearing here is not rules about how to make yourself right with God. No, according to the Bible, we are those who are stained and blemished by our sin. And there's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. But God, in his love, sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes in as a hero, as a dashing knight in shining armor. He comes and he rescues us from our sin. He dies on the cross, cleansing us from all our unrighteousness. And there we find forgiveness. There we find our righteousness, our acceptance before God. Our salvation comes through God's faithfulness and goodness to sinners in Jesus Christ. And that's what marriages are to be about. That's what marriages are to reflect. So, so no matter what you have done, you can know that love, that forgiveness today. God promises that any who will turn away from their sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ, they will be forgiven. They will know God as a loving father welcomed into his family. Please talk to me at the door. If, if that's you, if you're intrigued by this, if you want to learn and think more about this, please please come talk to me. Talk to the friend who brought you. Brought you. Uh, we would love to help you explore this further. For my brothers and sisters, as you go out into this week, as you, as you try to put this into practice, we need to remember that this is the God that we serve. None of us is equal to this task. Right? Who of us can do this? But, but God is faithful. He will never leave us or forsake us. Don't lose sight of the faithfulness of God who, ca- who calls you to be faithful in your singleness, in your marriages. Fear not, I am with thee.
Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that even as we struggle to hold on to our marriages, to our faithfulness to you, Father, you hold on to us with a firm, unbreakable grip. And Lord, we are secure in you, in Christ. Lord, help us to believe that. And in gratitude and in joy, help us to live that out in the way we love our husbands and our wives, in the way we remain faithful to you through through seasons of, of loneliness and trials. Oh God, we pray that marriages would be honored here at Henson Baptist Church, that the world would see something radically different in us because of the gospel. And as a result, the gospel here would be powerfully proclaimed. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.